Well, good morning. I want to uh, also add my thanks to everybody who volunteered this week and served in Vacation Bible School. Uh, It is a wonderful testimony to the love of this church for the next generation to see so many people who come out. We had uh, close to 200 children here and about 100 volunteers, so that's a pretty good ratio. Uh, But we still could always use more as we continue just to reach out to the families here in this community. Uh, one of the things you need to, uh, to make it through a long week of Vacation Bible School is perseverance. Um, the, the children's energy goes like this, and the volunteers' energy goes like this. So by about Thursday, they've crossed, and, uh, and, and you need lots of perseverance to, to make it through Vacation Bible School. You know, the coach Vince Lombardi once said about perseverance, the difference between a successful person and others is not a lack of strength, not a lack of knowledge, but rather a lack of will. And we know that's true when it comes to issues of maybe physical, maybe if you were ever involved in sports or athletics, or maybe you were involved in, in, in a discipline, a musical discipline or an arts discipline, uh, there, there's this point at which you reach a wall in your physical training. And of course they say in physical training, if you can make it through the wall, uh, then you can achieve uh, greater accomplishments in your, in your sport. So in running, for example, they say that somewhere around mile five or six, you get a second wind. My problem is I can never make it to mile five or six to find out if that's true or not. But, but I know in the musical area, if you're, if you're learning to play piano or an instrument, there are often these times where you come up against a wall and you think, oh, I can't get this, I can't do this, I can't go on. Uh, but, but a good music teacher will tell you if you just keep pressing through that hard time, right on the other side of it, uh, you'll see a lot of growth and a lot of experience. And, and perseverance is essential in all of those areas of our life, but it, it's not just in physical challenges or in, in musical challenges. It, it also has to do with relationships many times. Um, many of you who are married know that marriage requires perseverance. Uh, th- there are lots of times where you find yourself up against the vows you took. You know that part where you said for better or for worse? Uh, it's easy in the better part, but maybe not always so good in the for worse part. Sickness and health, those things. It requires perseverance to be a parent. Uh, you know, th- as you walk with your children through all the stages of life and you continue to persevere, friendships require perseverance if they're, going to, if they're going to last for any length of time. And even our relationship with God requires perseverance. So many people begin a journey with Christ only to give up along the way when the journey becomes hard. And in that initial meeting with Jesus, maybe some of you here have experienced the, the euphoria of coming to know God's plan for your life, and you've had an encounter with Christ, and you, you experience the excitement of a relationship with him, but that excitement doesn't last long, does it? Because the world can be a hard place to live, and so challenges come our way, and difficulties come our way, and, and we find ourselves needing to not just rely on yesterday's experience with Christ, but to continue to persevere and walk with him through all the challenges and the struggles that come. And if you walk the Christian journey long enough, you will find many people who fall away. Many people who don't persevere when difficult things come. And, and maybe they make a public statement to say, I'm no longer following Christ, I no longer believe that. But more often than not, they just slowly fade away. Maybe a divorce happens 
And they resolve themselves to the fact that God just didn't show up in the midst of my marriage. And so they begin to fade back. Maybe there's a, a challenge in their life with an addiction or some sin that they just can't seem to overcome. And after struggle after struggle and failure after failure, they just fall by the wayside. Maybe that describes some of you here today. As you have persisted in your journey with Christ, but it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging. Sickness still comes. Tragedy still finds its way into our lives. And so many people will look at their dashed hopes and their dreams and they'll say, I tried to live my life according to the the ways of Jesus. I tried to follow after him, but it's just too hard. And so they walk away. I'd like to introduce you today uh, to a a new friend. Uh, Deborah Moy has been with us here at Southside and her parents for the last couple months as Deborah's been doing some work here in town uh, with, uh, with an organization, uh, the Wounded Warriors Organization, and I've asked Deborah to come this morning and share her testimony with you. So if you will, please give a nice, warm Southside welcome to Deborah Moore. Thank you. Good morning, Southside Baptist Church. Um, I have been through a lot of things. Um, I've learned a lot of lessons. God has showed me a lot of things, and he's produced a lot of miracles in my life. Um, I learned so many things that I had to write them all down. So I appreciate in advance your um, cooperation with me in having to read my testimony to you. But that you know, I just don't want to leave anything out. There's lots of lessons here. Um, I'm here to tell you about hope first of all. And just so we're on the same page, I'm not talking about the I hope you have a good day type of hope or even the I hope I get that job type of hope. I'm talking about the kind of hope you rely on. I'm talking about the kind of hope when you're devastated and you feel completely destroyed. When you've been brought down to your bare bones I'm talking about the how in the world am I ever going to survive this type of hope. I'm talking about the why in the world did this have to happen to me kind of hope. I'm talking about that there is no way in the world I can possibly survive this kind of hope. And when you're there, when you're really, really there, sometimes you have nothing else but hope. The good news is that we as Christians always have hope. And having hope is no small thing. Because that's when God can do his finest work. We always know that there's a higher purpose to our pain. And if we take that hope and we add faith to it, then God can really show us what he's capable of doing. He gives us the hope and we must add the faith. As some of you may know, and many of you, probably most of you may not, I'm a walking miracle. Before I begin, I'd like to thank everybody here for listening to my story and having the patience to get to go through all these things with me. Many people around the world steadfastly prayed for me throughout my journey, and I'm truly humbled by this. We as the family of God are a great team. The only way I know how to begin my testimony is to start at the beginning. I was born, I'm going to say 29 years ago, (laughs) into a strong Christian family. We always trusted God 
throughout my childhood for everything. We were never anxious knowing that he would provide. The best example of my family's credo can be found in Philippians 4, 6, where Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So that's what we did, and God did provide for us. That's not to say that I got everything I wanted. I never had a telephone in my room, never mind a cell phone. Nor did we have a computer in our house. My parents didn't buy me a car when I turned 16. And now that I think about it, there are all kinds of things I didn't get when I was growing up. Wait a minute. Of course, you know I'm kidding. God always provided for my family, so we're never really worried about anything. This lack of anxiousness and this sense of assurance followed me throughout my life, including uh, when I moved out on my own. Because I knew that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, from Romans 8.28. My problems started when I forgot the God part of that verse. I took the all things work together for good part and left out the his purpose part. In other words, I thought I could live my life any way that I wanted and it would all work out just fine. As an aside, here's where I'd originally written, boy, was I ever wrong, but I don't think it's that simple because I think that all things in my life have worked together for good. In Romans 8, 28, Paul is talking about all things. He's not talking about the good stuff. He's also talking about the terrible and the awful stuff, too. So let's just say God had a few things to teach me. We can fast forward to my accident. Um, And just for the record's sake, I want to tell you what happened to me physically first, although the most important thing is what happened to me spiritually. Um, In September 2008, I was viciously attacked in my apartment. I was beaten to within inches of my life. And I was burned like a fire log on the floor of my living room in my apartment. A friend of mine who was with me at the time received the same treatment. When the EMTs removed us from the embers, they noticed that I was still alive, saying, this one's still breathing. Well, my friend wasn't so lucky. He didn't survive, and he was declared dead on arrival at the hospital, a murder victim. I sustained third and fourth degree burns over 70% of my body. My jaw was broken. My ribs were cracked. I fell into a non-induced coma for about a month. My kidneys failed. My lung was punctured. And then both of my legs and two of my fingers had to be amputated. I've endured well over 100 surgical procedures, and I spent over seven months in the burn ICU at the Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And a total of a year and a half in and out of the hospital proper. Needless to say, I've had a lot of time to think laying in a hospital bed in order to get through the day to to bear the pain that was associated with my injuries I used to count seconds and watch them turn into minutes. If I could make it through one minute, I thought I'd be okay. The pain was so severe that all I could do was lay there and moan sometimes. I had so many staples in my skin that the sheer weight of them pinned me to the mattress helpless. So I used to lay there and I would moan and I would think. 
in order to get through the, phys- the painful physical, uh, psychological trauma I had endured, I was forced to begin making a mental shift. I'm not sure when exactly this happened in my recovery, but at some point, I realized that I could do two things with what had happened to me. I could let it direct where I was going, and I could trust God, or I could let it define who I was as a person, ultimately destroying me and filling me with bitterness and resentment. So instead of thinking about things that I could never do, I was forced to figure out what to do with and to be grateful for that which I did have. I went from feeling upset about never being able to feel the sand between my toes at the beach, which was one of my favorite things, to being thankful that I had my life. I went from worrying about how I looked in the mirror to being thankful that my brain remained unharmed and I still had my razor-sharp wit to have comebacks to the doctors and nurses in the hospital. And although it was no small task, after making this mental refocus, I began to be immediately comforted. God, I knew, had a plan for me, and it was going to be big. I knew that God had saved me from the fire for a reason, and now it was up to me. The most frustrating thing about my recovery is what I call the two steps forward and one step back progression. There's lots of examples I could cite for you, but I'll give you just a few. First, after months of weekly surgeries and after one year, I had what I thought would be my last and final skin graft. And just an aside, um, skin grafts can only be taken from your own skin. Otherwise, my father would not have any skin on his body right now. But that's how it is. And so... After this month of weekly surgeries, um, two months later, I had to be rushed back to the emergency room with 104 temperature via ambulance in the middle of the night. All my skin grafts had failed due to a deep-seated wound infection in my wound beds. So not only did I lose all the skin over my original wounds, I was losing places for my body to take the skin to cover them. And as you can imagine, we as a family were completely devastated by this. I mean, that one infection, that one failing alone represented many, many operations, many painstaking surgical procedures, many sleepless nights, and many weeks of recuperation time. Down the drain. So we did the only thing we knew what to do. We prayed. Well, guess what God did? And guess who God brought me? A burn specialist who's a doctor who got his doctorate at MIT in Boston. This man literally wrote the textbook on severe wound burns and wound healing. It's used all over the world as a textbook for other doctors. So immediately my doctor, my new doctor got to work and eventually very, very slowly my skin was able to be grafted again. Another disappointment came months later after I began to learn how to walk on my prosthetics, only to fall on the floor of my kitchen, breaking my hip. This put me right back into the hospital bed again for three more months. So as you can imagine, I was forced to learn the lesson of patience. 
I mean, I had to lie in a hospital bed on one side of my body for almost two years. So whenever you think that something is too small to pray for, consider this. We prayed for individual skin cells to grow. I don't think you can get any smaller than that. And God listened to our prayers. Slowly but very surely, one cell would grow and it would attach to another, then another, eventually forming the basis for my new skin growth. On Sunday mornings, since I couldn't go to church, I would watch Dr. Charles Stanley on television. I remember one of his sermons when he addressed the common doubt concerning why God allows bad things to happen to us. Does he cause them? No. I remember Dr. Stanley saying that God only allows us to go through pain for only as long as it takes for him to accomplish what he wants in our lives. That is, God will only allow as much pain is as necessary for his will to be done. Wow, I thought, he must have had a lot of work to do on me. But I knew he was working and I knew it would be over sometime. And it reminds me of a saying that I once heard that Mother Teresa said. She said, I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. That pretty much sums up how I felt then and how I feel now. There are a few things I can tell you about pain. The first thing is, it hurts. I remember one time a nurse came into my hospital bed to take blood. Something they'd had to do several times a week before every surgery I had. And I remember feeling kind of silly because it hurt so bad. And I was complaining about how bad it hurt. And I remember thinking that after all I'd been through, all the major operations, the amputations, the skin grafts, the fighting for my life, a simple blood test shouldn't hurt me so much, comparatively speaking. But it did hurt, and it hurt a lot. And people say to me all the time, well, I was in pain, but nothing compared to what you've been through. Well, I can tell you this, when something is painful, it hurts no matter what. And I think the same thing goes for emotional pain. We can't compare our pain to someone else's. Everyone has experienced pain, and it's hurt each and every one of us equally. Your pain hurts you as much as my pain hurts me. Another thing I've learned about pain is that it doesn't have a memory. For example, I can tell you that I was in such pain that I had to envision myself crawling up into Jesus' lap just to separate myself from it. But the truth of the matter is, I don't have an accurate memory of how badly it hurt. This, I think, is both good and bad. It's good because the pain loses its sting, but it's bad because we can lose touch of exactly how desperate we were when God intervened and saved us. I'm reminded about our country following the 9-11 tragedy. I remember how we all clung to God after the Twin Towers were attacked. The nation as a whole joined together as brothers and sisters and called out to God with our pain. There were American flags waving everywhere and people drove around with those bumper stickers that said, never forget. Well, those bumper stickers have long since faded now. And no new ones are being produced. Why? Because we have forgotten. It's exactly what we've done. 
We've taken the reins away from God. It's as if we've said to God, thanks for getting us through that, God. We'll take it from here. If you've been watching the news, it seems like our country is moving further and further away from God at a much more rapid pace. This frightens me. I think President Ronald Reagan said it best when he said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. On a personal level, I am resolved that that will never happen to me. I will never forget how God plucked me from that fire. I will never forget how God comforted my family and joined us together. I will never forget how God put exactly the right people into my life at exactly the right time. I will never forget how God allowed me to be completely broken down only to build me into a new, improved version of myself. After surviving such a travesty, I am determined to never forget what God has done for me. As a family, we joined together, we pushed up our sleeves, and we dove straight into my long healing process. And God was there right alongside us. He was steadfast in his loyalty. He worked right next to us through the sleepless nights and the never-ending stream of surgeries. And I never want to live my life as to say to God, thanks for your help, I've got it. When I was putting together my testimony and trying to narrow down all the infinite things I've learned, a few basic lessons stood out to me. And these are things that I thought I'd already learned, but apparently I needed a refresher course. First lesson I relearned is patience. Because watching skin grow is not unlike watching water boil. It takes a very long time. And the second lesson I learned is humility. Because after all, it's virtually impossible to be cocky in a hospital robe. Not sure if any of you ever tried it, but trust me, don't bother doing it. It doesn't work. And finally, I learned a lot about hope and faith. I put these two together because I believe you can't have one without the other. You can't ask God to do something in your life without believing that he will. And I've learned that the painful lesson that worrying is the opposite of faith. I could have worried that, oh no, my skin grafts might not take. Well, guess what? They didn't take, and I was okay. I could have worried, oh no, they may have to amputate my legs. Well, guess what else? They did that too, and I'm the better person for it. I could go on and on, but you get the point. The elephant in the room here is what has happened to the person who did this to you. Well, the only answer I have for you is that God is once again in control. Believe me, he knows what I've been through and he knows where that man is. And we all know what God says about vengeance. He hasn't forgotten. So we as the Moy family, we do what we always do. We will pray and we will hope, and we will have faith, and we will somehow still be surprised by what God will do in our lives. And just like he sent me, to, sent me the doctor, one of the finest in the world, after my skin grafts failed, he will handle this issue with the perpetrator. I can't give you my story without telling you my life verse. Everyone in my family has one. Mine comes from Jeremiah 33.3. It says, call on me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that thou knowest not. 
So the answer to this crucial, all-important question of will I see justice here on this earth is, I know us not. The Lord has allowed me to retain my mental focus and has pointed me towards law school. I want to be an advocate for other people who have survived physical tragedies, be they other amputees, victims of violence, or other burn victims. He has paved the way for me to attend Elon Law School in Greensboro, North Carolina, which I began in 2013 and am set to graduate next year. Specifically, my goal has been to work with our wounded military personnel, and and I've sought a position with the Wounded Warrior Project almost as soon as I began law school. God has allowed me to spend my summer here in Jacksonville serving as a legal intern with the Wounded Warrior Project. So, in closing, I'll tell you this and I will tell you true. I would rather be standing here with no legs after surviving such a terrible, terrible disaster and be holding hands with God than to be living the life I did before, seemingly independent, walking on two legs without him. I am determined to be a shining example of God's grace and to develop myself into a walking testimony to him. I am determined to never forget. And to this I say, to God be the glory. Great things he hath done and will continue to do. Thank you. Deborah said she had a choice to make. She could allow the circumstance to define her, or she could allow God to define her circumstances. So many times when we choose to define our circumstances, we find ourselves walking away, walking away from God. In John chapter 6, Jesus met a crowd who was hungry, and he miraculously fed the crowd. The crowd was immediately drawn to him for what it was that Jesus had done for them, how he had met their immediate need. And the scripture tells us that Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, they had in mind what kind of king they wanted to, to be, Jesus to be. They had in mind what kind of God it was that they would follow, a God that met their needs, a, a God that made sure that they, their bellies were always full. When they followed Jesus to the other side and after just a few hours were hungry again and they went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, feed us again. And Jesus, instead of feeding them and meeting their temporary need in that moment, said something shocking to them. He said, listen, you'll eat this bread and you will die again because the circumstances of of your life will constantly bring you back to the fact that there is nothing that can ultimately and finally satisfy you except my body. My body is the bread of life. And unless you eat it, my blood blood is, is the wine. Unless you drink it, he said, you can have no part of me. And then the scripture tells us this. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, they they reached a point where they realized Jesus was unwilling to be the kind of king they wanted him to be. That they were disappointed in him. He didn't cooperate with them. And so they turned and they walked away. There may have been as many as 5,000 people around Jesus at that time. He was at the height of his popularity. And slowly, 
the crowd began to disperse. Until finally all that were around him were the 12 disciples who had originally followed him. And Jesus turned to those disciples and said, Do you want to go as well? And I'm sure for just a split second, Matthew thought, boy, I sure was making a good living back at the tax collector's booth. I mean, it was great when there was a crowd following Jesus and he was at the height of his popularity and I was one of the 12 on the inner circle. Maybe, maybe it would be better if I just go back to the tax collector's booth. And then there was, there was James and, and there was John and Andrew. And I'm sure they were thinking, you know, our dad could sure use our help back in the, in the fishing business. I mean, it doesn't look like this thing is going to work out with Jesus. Things just aren't going the way we thought they would go. Maybe we better go back and help our dad and catch some fish. And then, of course, there was Judas. What firm in Judea wouldn't have wanted Judas to be their accountant? Maybe, maybe this isn't going to work out and maybe we should turn back. But before any of them could voice any of their doubts, Peter, like he so often did, just blurted out and listened to what he said. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that. Because it implies that perhaps, perhaps Peter had considered the answer to that question. Maybe he had wondered himself, is there some place else we can go? Because this is hard. Following Jesus is not easy. Peter had left behind a wife and a mother-in-law. We don't know what other family. This is really difficult. And I've been thinking about it, Jesus. And here's my question. Where else would we go? What other options do we have? So you hear a story like Deborah's. And you ask yourself, where else would she go? What, What were the options? Bitterness? She could have chosen to be bitter. Many of us have walked down that path at least a little ways in times in our life, haven't we? When things haven't gone our way and bitterness begins to set in, the Bible describes bitterness like a root. Maybe anger. People who walk around for years with anger. And it comes out when you least expect it. Maybe over minor and trivial things, but its source goes way back to some pain, some disappointment, some hurt. Maybe she could have turned to anger. Maybe she could have turned to self-pity, made herself a victim, sought the sympathy of everyone she knew. What other choice did she have? What other choice do you have? Maybe you would search for hope and faith in some other religion. A religion that promotes works. Maybe if you just worked hard enough, you could earn God's favor and God's grace, but you find yourself always coming short and at the end wondering if it was ever enough to amount to anything. Maybe you would just say, you know what, it's too hard, and maybe there is no God at all. Which only leads to two possibilities. You become your own God. Or you find that there is no value in any living thing except as it relates to your survival and your needs in the moment. What other options do you have? Jesus asked the question, do you want to go away as well? And Peter says, Lord, (laughs) to whom would we go? I think that Peter might have been thinking about Psalm 73 when he said that. It's one of my favorite verses. And it says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? What other options do we have when life throws us a curveball and when circumstances turn against us, when we're disappointed? Where else do we have to go? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have, and here's the key, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. From 5,000 to 12, hundreds of people walked away, and hundreds of people still choose to walk away. When God refuses to cooperate and be the God of our own design. When Jesus refuses to be the kind of king that we want him to be. And instead he chooses to be the kind of king that we need. The kind of king himself who would suffer. Himself whose, whose body would be broken and whose life would be given so that we might have eternal life. He won't be the kind of king we want. Instead he will be the kind of king that we need. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know what I find so interesting about that and why John included it? Because you think if you go from 5,000 to 12, that's pretty bad. But Jesus points out what none of the twelve knew, that even all twelve of them wouldn't endure to the end. Even Peter would deny him. There would only be one of the twelve who would be present at the crucifixion. Everybody left. Everybody would betray. Many people who come to Jesus only discover that he will be the king that you need, not the one you expect. And when we reach the point of our total dependence on Jesus, we realize there is nowhere else to go. Nothing can be trusted to last forever. But Jesus says he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Jobs will come and go. Our possessions will one day all belong to someone else. Friends and family always leave, either by choice or by death. But the end result is still the same. Even our own bodies will eventually fail. There is only one place we can turn if it is eternal life that we seek. And his name is Jesus And there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. And this is a hard teaching. And many people part company with Jesus because of it. Especially in our pluralistic society. Because they have no problem with a moralistic Jesus who teaches love and peace and maintains his proper place among the pantheon of self-help gods. But when Jesus begins placing demands and making exclusive claims, and when life doesn't turn out the way we want and we learn faith and hope through the tragedies instead of through the triumphs, many people choose to walk away. And with their departure, Jesus turns to those of us who are left standing around, and he asks this question. You don't want to leave too, do you? Well, do you? Will you pray with me? As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, we're going to sing a song of commitment like we do most every week. 
And it's a song that's familiar. It's, it's a song whose words you probably won't even need to see on the screen. I have decided to follow Jesus. But what is so challenging about that song is the word decided. A choice of the will. To say that I will follow no matter what happens. Where else would I go? And today, if you find yourself up against that wall, and what you need is the perseverance to know that you will press through, not out of your own strength, but out of the strength that God has provided, when you will press through the disappointment because God has not been the God of your design, Jesus has not been the king that you've wanted, but the king that you've needed, maybe today you need to sing this song. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to pray at these steps or come and pray with me or find someone here that you need to pray with. But today, Jesus stands and asks the question, will you leave too? And we're all confronted with the choice. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to be the God that we need and not the God that we want. Thank you for Deborah's testimony and for the testimony of so many others who find deeper hope and faith, not in spite of tragedy, but even because of it. And who through perseverance have demonstrated faith and have, have offered hope. And Lord, today, many, uh, many people in this room are facing challenges and obstacles and they're confronted with this simple decision. Do I walk away or do I stay? Do I turn around or do I press on? And Father, your invitation is simple. Come, follow me. Lord, today, today and every day, may we make that decision to stand with Peter and ask, where else would we go? Because in, in fact, you, Lord, have the words of eternal life. Thank you. Thank you for the hope that you give us. Father, we pray that your hope would be made manifest in the lives of the people who've gathered here today, even in this time of invitation, even as we sing this song. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.